Chantel is going to come and share a story for us, and then Chantel, my daughter, um, and then I'll piggyback off that. I was recently in England um, to go on vacation, and I met up with my best friend there. Her name is Clea, um, and one day we took a train ride from London, I think it was, to Liverpool. And she turns to me and she says, I've got a story to tell you. So just a little bit of background, her husband's name is Elton, um, and he has a best friend, I want to say probably his best friend, um, and has been for about 15 or 20 years, and he's not saved, his best friend. And Elton has witnessed him many times, and he's just prayed for him and loved on him and been there for him, but Anton is not at all interested. Um, Anton actually works for someone in the, somewhere in the United States. He's a, I think he's a helicopter, commercial helicopter pilot, and he comes here about six months a year, works here, then goes back home and has six months with his family. Um, so when he's there, he's there full time. So Elton, um, and recently Anton and his girlfriend had moved to Cape Town, which is another part of the country in South Africa. So Elton and Clea went for a um, wedding in Cape Town and they met up with Anton and Nikki there. And Nikki turns to Clea and says, we're actually thinking I wanna go to church sometime. So Clea's like, okay, well that's great. She says, well, Anton will never go, so we probably won't go. So Clea feels, she'd actually just met up with a person that day who we've known for a long time, who leads a church, who started a church in Cape Town. And she happened to have his business card on her. So she just felt to put it on the dining room table. So she left it there and um, went home and that was that. But Nikki never took the dine, that card off the table, she left it there. And every day she would walk past it and Anton would walk past his business card and no one would do anything about it. And about three weeks later, they just left it there, they didn't touch it. About three weeks later, Anton suddenly says to Nikki, let's go to church tonight. She's like, what? She's like, yeah, let's go to this, this guy's church. Let's see what it's about. So they get in the car and they go to church and it's this tiny little home church, nothing what they expected. Um, and he sits there and there's this guest preacher from the United States. And this preacher, he... It wasn't anything that Anton expected. He just spoke straight into his heart and he gave him a prophetic word, something Anton didn't even know what it was. And Anton completely broke down. And a little bit of history is that he is a very intellectual, kind person, and that's why he'd rejected God his whole life, because he didn't understand him. So this person just spoke straight into his heart. So Claire's telling me the story, and she says, and the pastor of that church is, is Winton, which is um, Tanya's father, which is somebody that we grew up with in South Africa, and that guest preacher was your father. And the thing that's so amazing is that I remember when my dad actually came back from speaking that day, he told me that he went to this church, um, and he told me it was Winton's church, so I asked about it, and he said it was just 20 people um, that were there, it was a small thing, and I don't... He kind of, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he felt, he wasn't sure if what had happened, if something had really happened. But this guy's life was completely, completely changed around. He ended up, it was at that six months' time where he didn't have work, so he was back in South Africa. He ended up spending all that time with Winton. He grew up without a father, or he had an absent father, and fatherhood was really his big issue with God. And Winton is such a fathering person. And he fathered this man, Anton. A few months later, he married his girlfriend of, I think, 20 years. They already have three children together. And his whole life has completely turned around. Um, 
and the children's lives have turned around, the wife's life has turned around, and they're serving God in amazing capacity. Um, and yeah, and it's all because I think that somebody, God put somebody in his life that could bring the gift that he needed. He just needed someone to just see straight through all of that. And yeah, I shared this story with my dad the other day. He wanted me to share it. Thank you. Good day. That is amazing. I was more shocked than anybody else. I'm telling you this because I want to preach into it a little bit. Because when Michelle and I went to this church, and what happened was we went to South Africa, and we were in South Africa three weeks. And that particular Sunday, we hadn't arranged to preach anywhere. Nowhere. And two days, three days before that Sunday, I bumped into Winton, who is the pastor of that church. And that's up in Joburg, and that's like a thousand miles from Cape Town. And he, we start chatting, chatting about these kids, and, his, and I said, oh, we're probably coming to Cape Town because I needed to go visit somebody else. And he said, would you consider coming to preach? So I turned to Michelle, and I said, can we get back to you? Because we wanted to take some time out and whatever. But we just felt, yeah, we need to do that. So I said, all right, we'll do that. And I remember arriving there on the Sunday morning, and it was the small, very small, very small, stuck away in the corner, 15, 20 people, we brought three visitors, so that made up 50% of the congregation, if you know what I mean, and, um, and then I walked out of there, and I could see God had done something, but I said to Michelle, I don't know if something really happened, I don't know if something really shifted or changed, I pray we were able to encourage those people. Then Chantel tells me the story, and the whole thing is, we're never aware of what God is doing. God is at work. We see things and we make a judgment on what we see, but God is working behind the scenes. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I'm saying that to encourage everyone, yeah, because this is where I want to go and preach on. Often at times in our lives, we're not aware because we see things, we experience things in the natural. And so we lose sight of the fact that God is always at work in our lives. Always. Always. Even when we've blown it, He's always at work in our lives. Always. And we lose sight of that. We really do. So it was like a wake-up call for me. It really was. It's like behind the scenes, there's something happening. It's beyond what you and I can physically see or experience in the natural Yet God is at work. And that's what the Bible says. Even Jesus said, my father is always at work. Always at work. Therefore, this is why I do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. So it's not about me. It's just about the fact of God help my unbelief at times, if you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I was blown away. I have to be brutally honest. Um, I remember the guy. I remember him. I remember him was sitting about second row from the back. And I felt a simple word that God gave me for him as I was preaching. And I just looked at him. I said it to him. And I could see it had impact on him. And all I preached about that day was the father heart of God. And obviously that and what it means to be a son of a father. And obviously that got through to him. And it's amazing how God's going to bring somebody from another country into a small community, 20 people in this church. And this poor man, I just was privileged to bear the fruit, but um, what's, Elton did all the sowing. 
did all the praying, did all the hard work, did all the labor, did all the, you with me? And we were just privileged to bear the fruit and to see the fruit. And so it's wonderful to see. It really is. Thank you, Lord. It really is. And so I want to just take this and preach a little bit into this from this perspective. That's why I shouldn't tell to share the story. Because often at times we live our lives from moment to moment and from one experience to the next experience. And when, as a Christian, and when nothing seemingly is happening as a Christian, and nothing seems to be going on in our lives, and nothing dramatic seems to be happening, and we're not having this heavenly experience or, or whatever, the, then we tend to run somewhere. We tend to run to a conference because then I'll feel better. Or we tend to, if that guy can lay his hands on me and pray for me and, and God can stick me on the ceiling and whatever, because God can do all those things. Or I can float in the air for a while or whatever, you know what I mean? We tend to run to that because it's like we want to get this experience back and we live from one experience to the next instead of just saying, I trust you, Lord. There's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong in going to some of those things. But it's not to go there to substitute for what God's doing in my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or when life comes at me and life comes at all of us, even as Christians, and things are seemingly not going the way we'd like them to go, then I begin to look for answers somewhere else. I begin to maybe seek help somewhere else. Or I maybe begin to um, start to read self-help books. Or I begin to, and I understand that, not any of those are wrong. But when we're looking somewhere to fulfill something in our life that God alone can fulfill. Because we, we're not sure if God's actually at work in us, and yet he is at work in us. He is at work in us every single moment. We just don't perceive it. We really don't. But he's at work in us. And so, turn with me to the Bible, to Colossians, the book of Colossians, please. So I, if I had to give a little title to what I want to speak about this morning, it's a long title, and me and titles, I don't do well. Steady, ongoing, Patiently trusting, wholeheartedly trusting, believing, and looking steadfastly to Jesus. How's that for a title? <laughs> I can't, because I made some of it up as I was going. <laughs> Just steadfastly looking to Jesus. Let me put it that way. The book of Colossians, C-O-L. Okay, it's in your Bibles. Remember I said Gentiles eat pork chops, so that's how you know where it is. Okay, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gentiles eat pork chops. That's the best way I can explain it. Three times, then you get the three T's. Timothy, twice, and Titus. Okay, three times. Okay, so you know where to look in your Bible for the books, okay. But Paul did not plant this church. And I have to give context because it's very important to understand. He never went there, and, he, uh, and there's no record that he ever went there later. 
but he wrote to them. So he never spent time with them. He never had opportunity to see them face to face and spend time with them like many of the other churches that he planted. So when he had an opportunity to write to them, what he wrote was of prime importance. Because he probably, I don't know if he knew, I have one shot at this. And so what I write to these folk is very important. And the reason why he was able to write to them is because there was a guy called Epaphras who actually lived in that area, Colossia, who went to Ephesians, which is about 100 miles away, when Paul was there for three years. He was actually there for two years and three months or four months. But the Bible just makes it three years. And he sat under Paul's teaching and got radically saved. Radically saved. And he went back to Epaphras, or to Colossia, let me rather say that. And you can go read it in Acts 19 if you really want the scriptures. He went back there and obviously with Paul's help and obviously with communicating with Paul, they started a church there and people got saved. And so five or six years go by and Epaphras goes to visit Paul while Paul's, now Paul's in prison in Rome. He's locked away. But Epaphras goes to visit him. One, the Bible says, you can, I can show you the scriptures, one was to serve him, to actually literally go serve him, and two was to report him what had actually happened and what was happening in the church. And so he tells Paul, there's good news and there's bad news. <laughs> good news is God is at work and people are getting saved, etc., etc. But some of the bad news is that there's some false teaching that's beginning to come into this church. Some false doctrine, some heresy. The teaching was a combination of Greek philosophy and Jewish rituals, holy days. You had, they had to keep holy days and uh, uh, moon and Sabbaths and all sorts of stuff. And it was a combination of that. And tied in with that, people were coming with that. They had secret knowledge apart from Christ. It's called Gnosticism. And, um, and there were some people coming in, they were saying they had visited angels, angels had visited them, and etc., etc., and whatever. So Paul decides to write this letter. And in writing this letter while he's in, it's very important to understand this, while he's writing this letter, he also writes to the church in Ephesus, and he also writes to an individual called Philemon, or Philemon, or however you pronounce him. It's a book in the Bible. We're going to turn to that briefly. Actually, you can go there first, then we'll go back to Colossians. And it, those three letters are delivered by two people. One called, oh, I can't pronounce the names, T-Y-C-H-I-S-U-S, -S, I don't know how to pronounce that, Tyracharis or something, and Wonumus. They deliver the letters to the various people. All right, all right, I could call them Dwayne and uh, Guy, but anyway, they weren't Dwayne and Guy, all right. But they deliver the letters, okay. And it's very interesting to what Paul wrote to the church of Colossians. Very, 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 very important. Very important, because he knew he had one shot at this. So he wasn't writing to answer questions about the gifts or the anointing or marriage. He was writing some important truths that he knew these people would need for the rest of the Christian walk. You with me? It's what's such an important book. I love this book. I really do. But let's go to Philemon quickly. Now, to tell you who Philemon was, the church at Colossia met at Philemon's house. That's where they met. 
Now, Philemon is after Titus and before Hebrews, if you're not too sure where it is. So it's not after Genesis. Yeah, it's way after. It's actually, it's way after Genesis, that's true. Philemon, actually, very simply, <clears throat> I just want to get my notes right here. Yeah. The church met at Philemon's house. He was a fairly wealthy man. He was, in those days, what they call a slave owner. And one of his slaves was a man called Onimus, or Onimus. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Onusimus, thank you. And this man had stolen money from his master and run away. And when he ran away, he encountered Paul and got radically saved. Now, Paul is writing back not only to the church, but to this one person who's quite influential where the church meets and is writing to Philemon and he's encouraging Philemon to take this man back. And so if you go to verse 7, because it's only one chapter, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. So you could see it was an individual that God had used very powerfully in that church to encourage people and stand with people and help people. Verse 8, Therefore, although I'm in Christ, and I could be bold and order, that word order literally means to, I could tell you to do this next thing. I could, because they obviously had a relationship, Paul and this Philemon to some degree, I could order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal. That word means I want to come alongside. I want to ask you and I want to exhort you to on the basis of love. Amazing where Paul goes. Remember what Clayton said? Not on any other basis, but the basis of love. I then as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onimus, or Onimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you. Now it's interesting what Paul makes a plain word here, because onumus means useless. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But it's interesting, Paul, the heart of this man. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. And so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. It means it's got to come from the heart. Everything's got to come from the heart. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a while was that you might have him back for good. No longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I'll pay it back. The heart of this man is unbelievable. And so he writes that letter and he gives it to an individual. But then he also writes to the church. And now if you can go to Colossians. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time, if that's okay. Just don't want to lose. If you can find it, if you've got the book of Colossians, you there? Yeah. All right, wonderful. All right, so the book of Colossians, as I said, is an amazing book. It really is an amazing book. And um, 
So let me get my order right. So the first thing Paul does to this church, he obviously greets them and he welcomes them. And in the first couple of verses, he talks about uh, the gospel that is bearing fruit all over the world as it's bearing fruit in your area. Uh, in verse 6, you can see that. And as you understood God's grace in all the truth that it comes in, he talks about that, and he spoke about Epaphras. You learned it from Epaphras, a dear servant, verse 7, faithful minister who, uh, who loves you, who loves you in the spirit, etc., etc. And then he prays a prayer for them. We'll come back to that. But the first thing he majors on, after he's greeted and explained, and, and it's wonderful to see what's going on, is what does he do? Go to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Now we know who him is. It's Jesus Christ. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So what is the first thing Paul does? He focuses on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He tells his people who Jesus is. That he's above all. All authority. There's no authority above that. That he's everything. He holds everything together. Everything was created by him and for him and through him. In other words, he is supreme. That's the first thing he does. And it's some, of the, some commentators say it's some of the loftiest words that Paul used in terms of Jesus Christ. Verse, chap, verse chapter 2. Verse 2, he says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so they may have full riches of the complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all. Say that word, please. All. All. Not some. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that we need to know for life and godliness are hidden in Christ Jesus. Everything. I remember there's been times in my life where we've had to counsel people and we weren't getting a breakthrough. We weren't for some reason, or whatever. And I used to think, I don't know why we're not getting breakthrough here, or why we're not able to help these people. So inside of me, I started to think, well, maybe I need to go and read up on psychology so I can understand a bit more. Or There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not their solution. Jesus Christ is the solution. That can be maybe a small help in helping understand things but that can never fix a person and change a person's heart. You with me? Only Jesus can. I remember, I remember the dynamics that were going through my own brain and my own heart. 
And how when things, like I said, don't quite go the way we want to, we tend to want to run somewhere else. Instead of patiently, patiently looking at Jesus because he's always at work, even when we're not aware of it. Always. Like the story Chantal said. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 9. Talking about Jesus again. For in Christ, all the fullness... All the fullness, again that word, all, not part, all the fullness of the deity of who God is, lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head of every power and every authority. So it's really encouraging them, it's about Jesus Christ. And he's laying a foundation, nothing other than Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's laying this foundation in. And how easy we, even as Christians, can be waylaid off that foundation and begin to look elsewhere. Amen. And yet Paul is laying this foundation of Jesus Christ again and again. This is the book, and it's the only book that he writes it in so plainly where he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. Just what Clayton was saying. That Christ that is above all things lives inside you by faith. He's saying. Think about that. Just think about that, people. Just close your eyes and think about that. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, all things, galaxies and stars and moons and everything. Above all things lives inside you if you're a born-again Christian. Lives inside you. And as was said, he wants to express who he is out of you. That's why the Bible said God created the male and female in the image of God. We created in his image, but it was marred through sin. It was broken, it was marred, it was destroyed in a sense. And through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that's why it's called, he restored that. And I knew this, but it struck me a couple of weeks ago when we went somewhere, and the gentleman said, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, created them male and female, and then God said, bless them, and said, go forth and multiply. What were they to multiply? The image of God. That's what they were meant to multiply. The image of who God is. But it was marred. So Jesus comes to restore it. That's why it's the foundation and he comes to now live within us in this dispensation, New Testament of grace. So that his image of who he is within you and within me, through your personality and my personality, may be expressed. The image of God may again be expressed to a dying world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? He chose you. Broken, destitute, wicked. Messed up, 
insecure, rejected, but he chose you. He said, you're mine. I will redeem you. I will restore you. Not only that, I'll put me inside you. And through you, people will know what I'm like. Through you. Through you. It's amazing. It really is amazing. It really is. And we all know we come with, we're not complete. But God is at work. Hallelujah. Amen. We're complete in Him. It's done. But we're walking into that completeness. Let me say it that way. But as we do that, He still wants to display who He is to a dying world. Not display me. Not display Clayton. Please, heavenly no, Lord, no. But display him. <laughs> Sorry, Clayton. I can tease my own son, so it's fine. So Paul writes this. Why? One, because I told you that. Two, if you go to verse two, verse four, he says, I tell you this so that, you, that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Isn't that interesting? So people were coming in there to try and teach him something else by oratory skill or whatever the case is. And he says, I don't want people to deceive you by how well they speak or what they speak about. Keep your focus on Jesus Christ. In, verse two, verse, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than of Christ. What is he saying there? He's saying the world's principles and the way the world views things. He says you cannot get your identity from that or your worth from that or the opinions of the press or the glamour magazines. Or uh, I said to Michelle, I feel for young people. I honestly feel for particularly young ladies. My heart breaks for young ladies because they get thrown this image through all the secular press and the magazines and the film stars of what they're going to look like to be accepted, what they're going to be wear to accept it, which is garbage. I'm not blaming them. It's just worldly wisdom. And he's writing to this church and saying, don't go there, people. Don't go there. Don't get your identity. Don't receive your value or your worth or your identity from that. Just don't get it from the fashion. It's amazing how the fashions in the 20s and 30s are now coming back. There's nothing new under the sun in some ways. It's amazing, eh? Don't go to get your identity or your truth from what people that are revered or honored in the world system, what they say. Don't get your values from that, he's saying. Don't take your values from those people. When I got you in 2003... I remember 2004 was the first election I ever sat under in this country, and I was very excited because I'd read about it, but I'd never been there to experience it. So I stayed up the whole of that Tuesday night watching the election, and uh, it was an eye-opener to me. And um, I remember many of the ballots in many of the states, while they voted for the president, there were other things they vote for, like um, how they felt about marijuana was in 2004. Do you know what the response was at that time? Over 85% said no. 85% no. 
They did it again in 2000, was it 2012? It was nearly 70% said yes. So what changed in nine years? The same people had such strong convictions because a group of people got together that were influential, had money, and influence, and begin to put stuff out there again and again and again and again. So people were taking their values from that rather than what God said. That's what Paul is talking about here. In 2003, 2004, on that same, they asked about gay marriage, whether it should be legalized. Over 70% said no. 2012, 70% said yes. It was amazing to me. In a short nine-year span, what can happen? Now, your kids, my grandkids, because my kids are now old enough to decide, live up or grow in an environment where that is normal. And so they think, no, this is just normal, this is fine. I'm not decrying those people. God loves them. I'm not any of that. I'm just saying it's not normal people. That's all I'm saying. You with me? That's why Paul is laying in the strong emphasis of Christ, of Christ, of Christ, of Christ. He's laying it in. Saying, don't take your values, your identity. Don't go after the fashions. Dress modestly, dress well, dress nice, look like me. No, don't. <laughs> you know, if you're an extravagant dresser, that's great. Some people are creative. My, my younger daughter is a very creative dresser. I love it the way she's very creative the way she dresses and whatever. Because she's that, and that's great. You with me? I'm encouraging you people, take your identity from what Jesus thinks about you. Take your identity from that. And I can tell you categorically, and I'm not lying, he loves you with all his heart. Because he died for you. He died for you. He gave his life for you. That's why I know he loves you. Verse 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, 16. Therefore, again, Paul is, that's why he's writing this, do not let anyone judge you. That word judge means to call into question or give an opinion. In other words, call into question why you're doing this or call into judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. In other words, he's saying if you're not doing those things and going off to these religious festivals, don't let people judge you for that. Read verse 17. These are a shadow, a shadow, a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. Now, maybe I'm going to step on toes. Folk, one day is not more holy than the other day. Sunday is not more holy than Saturday. Trust me. Nor is Christmas, nor is Easter. They are all the same because the reality is in Christ. So we cannot put our faith or trust in a day or a ceremony or a ritual to make us right with God. It's in Christ. Are you with me? Thank you. 
And even what is taught, unfortunately, in churches, there is no mediator between God and man except Jesus Christ. No Pope. No Mary. No saints. No statues of those things. Jesus Christ. Thank you. It's true. It's a fact. It's just amazing what the world will receive, and even Christians what they will receive. What Clayton was saying. We don't know who we are in Christ, because the system, the world system has thrown stuff at us. And the only way we find out is when we get in here and find out what this says about us. There's no religious activity you can do. None activity you can do that can make you right with God or make you closer to God. That's through Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's it. I'm not saying you don't have to do some of those, but you don't do those to get closer to God. That's through Jesus Christ. That's all I'm saying because that's what Paul said. You with me? And I'm hopping on it. Chapter 2, verse 18. He said this. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection from the head and from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God. What he's saying is, if somebody comes in a mist and they've had this experience where they've been taken and they've walked with angels or seen angels, don't be deceived by that in terms of think that they are better or closer to God than you. Don't get caught up with that stuff. Don't go down there. It's not there. It's in Jesus Christ. And if he wants you to see an angel, he'll let you see an angel. Hallelujah. Amen. Some people do, some people don't. All I see is demons, unfortunately, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Maybe I should pray about that. You're right. <laughs> Maybe I should pray about it. In other words, don't be enamored. That's what he's saying. Don't be enamored or caught off and get taken away. I just want to check that. I've got all the scriptures I want to This is the prayer he prays for them. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. I'm coming to an end. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, where is that spiritual wisdom and understanding? What did the Bible just tell us in chapter 2? It's in Christ. That's what the Bible told us. All wisdom. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his, not yours, not mine, his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has 
qualified you to share in the inheritance. So that's a wonderful prayer he prays. And in the first two chapters of Colossians, this is what Paul says, Christ has done for you. He has qualified you. When you received him, believed him, he qualified you. You shared an inheritance with him. He's rescued you from darkness. He brought you into the kingdom of light. He redeemed you. He forgave you. He reconciled you. He lives in you. He strengthens you. He'll teach you. You have the fullness of Christ in you. Your heart was circumcised by Christ. He bear, you were buried with him. You were raised with him. You made alive with Christ. And he canceled what was opposed to you. All in Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. That's for you and I, people. Hallelujah. That's why Paul lays such this foundation of Christ. And he's saying he's at work in you. He's at work in you. Always. When you don't see it, he's at work in you. He's at work in you. Don't run anywhere else. Don't look for other things. Don't run after that. Look at Jesus. He's at work in you. Look at Jesus. He's at work in you. He's at work in you even when you don't know it. He's at work in you. Because he's redeemed you and bought you with a price. And so he's saying, give thanks. Paul mentions give thanks in this particular book, I think about 15 times. Give thanks. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Give thanks to the Father who is qualified. Give thanks. Have a gratitude. So I'm encouraged you. Just keep walking around. Jesus, thank you. You're at work in me. Jesus, thank you. You're at work in me. Jesus, thank you. You're at work in me. Even when I blow it, Jesus, thank you. You're at work in me. Even when I'm nasty to my wife's nasty to me and I don't respond well, Jesus, thanks, you're at work in me. Sorry, I didn't put it that way around. You're at work in me. Yes, amen. All right, so I want to end with this out of the scripture. When you don't see it, he's at work in you. I'll just read it to you for Amplified. Therefore, we do not become discouraged utterly spiritless, exhausted, and wearied out through fear. Though our outer man is progressively decaying, trust me, I know that, and wasting away, yet our inner self is being progressively renewed day by day. For our light and momentary affliction, the slight, slight distress of the passing hour, <laughs> is ever more and more abundantly preparing and producing and achieving for us an everlasting weight of glory beyond all measure, exceedingly surpassing all comparisons and all calculations, a vast transcendent glory and blessedness never to cease. Since we consider and look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are visible and are temporary. They're brief and fleeting. But the things that are invisible are deathless and everlasting. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17, and 18. It's in the Amplified. Look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Amen. That's all I want to say. I feel to just encourage you. Don't look to the scene, folk. He's ever at work in you. Stay Jesus-focused and know that he lives within you. Amen.